This is study six in the book of Job, basically about chapter 28 with two short extracts from the preceding chapters. Glorious Wisdom This study falls into two parts. First, there are the chapters after number 23 and up to chapter 28, but I'm going to skip over these. They do not add a great deal to what we've already thought about, and indeed appear somewhat muddled. So much so that many scholars think they've got scrambled somewhere between Job and us. Two bits are worth reading. The first is as much for amusement as anything else. Job has already called his friends miserable comforters, and he now unleashes a real blast of sarcasm against them in the first four verses of chapter 26, which I now read. How you have helped the powerless! How you have saved the arm that is feeble! What advice you have offered to one without wisdom, and what great insight you have displayed! Who has helped you utter these words, and whose spirit spoke from your mouth? Ugh. Much more positively, Job once again states that nothing will make him give up his faith in the Lord and his righteousness. These are words worth hearing in these days, when so many are prepared to give up their faith, and thus their integrity, for the thinnest of reasons. Hear that in the first six verses of chapter 27. As surely as God lives who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. That's much better. But then the steady progression of argument between Job and his friends is suddenly interrupted by a beautiful poem. At first sight it seems to cut across the main argument of the book, and not to be about the same sort of things at all. But in fact it takes us back to and reminds us what the whole book is really about. This is indicated by the last verse of this chapter 28 repeating the main points of the very first chapter of the book. The argument in this chapter is so subtle, we reach verse 12 before we're told what the subject of the poem, and therefore of the book, really is. Though even before we learn that, we can still understand the writing as an extended metaphor of all the toing and froing that has occurred so far. Here are those first eleven verses. There is a mine for silver, and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth 
from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. Isn't that magnificent? Just like miners, Job and his friends have been hacking away in the dark, hoping to find some precious idea that will light up the gloom that surrounds Job. Neither the lion nor the eagle can get anywhere near what the miners are after. It is only mankind that has any interest in things like this. We finally learn what it is all about in verse 12, which says, But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And this is expanded on in the rest of the chapter, first with a great statement of praise of how important it is, and then the statement that it is ultimately a spiritual attribute and can therefore only be obtained from the Lord. Here it is from that verse 12 onwards. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth it cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumour of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Wisdom is a very important biblical concept that is much neglected, so we will explore it in some detail. 
The word wisdom is used in several different ways in the Bible, of which we are interested in three. One, it's about living well in the practical life of every day. So much the same as the way of the New Testament. Secondly, it's God's knowledge and creative power. And thirdly, there's the personification of this second meaning of wisdom, with the New Testament revealing Jesus is that personification. There are associated concepts of the sage, the wise man or woman, and the books of wisdom, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and some Psalms, also Sirach and the Wisdom of Solomon in the Apocrypha. We, like Job, are most interested in the first of these. How can we live well in this difficult world? There is plenty of wisdom, knowledge and understanding all around us. We use it every day when we watch the TV or go out in a car. But none of that sort of wisdom says anything about the meaning of life and how we can best navigate all the difficult situations which are an inevitable part of living. In short, that sort of wisdom is not about what I have called living well. To reach that goal, one in my list, will mean that we have to understand, two, God's knowledge in creation, and three, the role of Jesus in imparting wisdom to us. None of this is being wise in any sense of becoming a graduate or getting a master's, let alone gaining a doctorate, in either a secular field of study or even a biblical one. No, it is something well within the reach of each and every one of us. It may be a little old lady, like my lovely long-dead grandmother, who is the wise person in this biblical definition of wisdom. It is all about something difficult to describe, but easy to recognize when you meet a truly wise person. It is about living well, living contentedly, making good decisions, fitting into one's world well, and relating well to other people. We can do all those things, but we can also all fail horribly to do them. Here's a question. Of the people you know well, who lives wisely in this sense? Try to work out what it is about those people that made them go to the top of your private list of wise people. We cannot live well by accident. Living well doesn't just happen. We have to think out what our aims and objectives in life are before we will get anything right. It is really sad that so much of Western culture refuses to do so. We are like Israel in the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the ancient world, Jewish scribes and Greek philosophers argued about what was the best way to live. We don't. We just try to accumulate more and better material things, thinking quite wrongly, that a bigger pile of toys will bring us true satisfaction and contentment in life. They won't. Let me reread 
what the author of the poem said, first in verses 12 to 22. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumour of it has reached our ears. He asks himself and us, where can true wisdom be found? How can we learn to live well? His answer to his own question is, I can't find it. I don't know how to live well. And I'm sure we can all say amen to that. But then he realises what the answer to his question is. It is found in God, the Lord, and only in him. That is what he says in the remainder of the chapter, verses 23 to 28. Here it is again. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind, and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain, and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom, and appraised it, he confirmed it, and tested it, and he said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. The crucial phrase is the fear of the Lord in the last verse. A surprisingly ordinary common phrase in the Old Testament, but it is easy to misunderstand in our translations. It has nothing to do with being frightened. It means respecting, honouring, obeying the Lord. To borrow and change slightly a New Testament phrase, it means to walk in step with the Lord, with Jesus. And we do need to consider the New Testament here. In the eyes of the New Testament writers, Jesus was the personification of the wisdom of the Old Testament. Wisdom actually walking this earth along the dusty tracks of Galilee and Judea. Old Testament wisdom says, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary 
so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight, day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. So the hymn writer was right when he talked of Jesus flinging stars into space. Jesus himself announced that he was wisdom. Matthew reports in chapter 11 and verse 19 that he said, in a way very reminiscent of the Old Testament wisdom literature, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. But John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom, that is me, Jesus, is proved right by her deeds. Paul hopes that the Colossian Christians may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is where wisdom has got to. It has come into full view in the person of Jesus. In Romans 6, Paul says, All of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then goes on in verse 8, If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. To live with him is to fear the Lord, to use Job's language. To use more modern language, it is to be plugged into him so that all his spirit power, and in particular all his wisdom, can flow into us, you and me, an endless and bottomless resource for living well. We are plugged in if we pray, read, worship, and keep the ways and calls of Jesus constantly active in our lives. Wow! And a question, are you plugged in? Do you live well? Do you know this great resource, which will take you through life, living well, even if your life looks desperately difficult from outside? I do hope so.